Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumiapathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 96 with my guest, Chris Brogan. Chris and I talk about treating his depression with ketamine, how we can incorporate more empathy into our businesses, and what it means to be dented. Chris, if you don't know, is a big name in the world of business and digital media, and he's a really sweet dude, and he's also dented, as I am dented. And we talk about what dented means and how we are all a bit dented. And uh, I love the conversation. He's a really he's a really lovely guy, uh, and I really enjoyed uh, chatting with him. And I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Okay, but before we get to the episode, uh, please uh, follow Yumi Empathy on Twitter and Instagram at Yumi Empathy. We also have a little private Facebook group. Uh, it's at facebook.com slash groups slash Empathy. Go over there and uh, hang out with other feely humans. Uh, what else? So, okay, episode 100 is coming, and I've been asking for your uh, short five-minute or less stories, and they only got two of them. So, I'm not going to do that anymore. Episode 100 is going to be something else I haven't figured out yet. Uh, for the f- two folks who did submit their sh- stories, thank you very much. Thank you for doing that. I haven't figured out what I'm going to do with those yet, but I'll do something special. I promise. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. Um, what else? I guess I, I did want to mention that uh, this is the weekend after my experience at Camp Heal, uh, where I was a camp staff volunteer, and I led a workshop on empathy. And... <sighs> I, you guys, I, I felt like home going to, going to Camp Heal and being around uh, other people who are in recovery from eating disorders or who consider themselves recovered like I do. uh, Just being with those people, it felt like uh, I was with my people and it, it was so, it was such a moving experience for me. I'm, I've just been, my heart has been full ever since. And I, I, I'm just so grateful to Arwen and the people at Project Heal for including me in that experience. And I hope, I hope I can continue to be a part of Project Heal in some way, whether it's volunteering or, or certainly being there at Camp Heal, uh, too. So, um, if you aren't familiar with Project Heal, go check them out. They're wonderful. Uh, even if you, haven't experienced eating disorders like I have. It, they're a they're a group that's doing wonderful, heartfelt, feely human work, and uh, they deserve your money. So if you have some, if you have five dollars, ten dollars, twenty, a hundred, whatever, go support Project Heal because they're a great nonprofit that's uh, that's just doing wonders in the world. So, okay, uh, shall we get to the episode? Let's do that. Okay, episode ninety six. We are the dented. With my friend Chris Brogan. You, you and me, 
Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I am honored to share space with business advisor, New York Times bestselling author, and advocate for the dented, Chris Brogan. Hello, Chris. Hello to you. How are you? I'm the best I've ever been. I love that. And you know, wh- any day where no one's that? shooting at me, I feel like that's a good answer. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's fair. I think I think um, we get into a lot of those sort of corners on this podcast talking about, you know, well, this person has it worse. So, you know, in grand perspective of things, it's, I don't have it that bad or I you know, I'm, you know, so I think that's, I think that's a fair comparison or a fair description. It's fair because it's yours. <laughs> sure. There you yeah. go. Yeah. You know, I guess one way I think about that all is I just think that, um, especially I, I deal with mild clinical depression. And so there are days when I have that sort of sense of, Oh, we'll never make it. Everything's terrible. So, you know, on days when I'm even a little bit up, I like to kind of poke fun at the fact that, you know, a lot of times, when everything's when you're looking at your belly button, everything looks a lot more close up. Yeah, no, that's true. I think it. it I think having and I'm I'm I like you have also clinical depression. I think having the it's like an expected um, moment of struggle. I mean, we know it's coming, and I think what always helps me is kind of reminding myself that um, I'm resilient, that I've kind of been there before. It, and I can add maybe a little of the levity that you're talking about because I have I have that knowledge already. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's uh, it's one of those. If you, uh, it's like object permanence. You know, mm. this is gonna this wave is gonna go in. It's gonna crash all over us, and then it's gonna go away again, and we'll all be fine. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you so much for being here, Chris. I. Um, I we were talking about before we started recording that I uh, I've known about you for a long time and I, I need to thank my uh, dear friend Janet Fouts who uh, the listener should know has been an, uh, a guest on this podcast so I, I need to thank her for bringing me back into into my sort of world. That's great. Well, Janet's a wonderful person, so I always love when these kinds of serendipitous moments happen. Indeed, indeed. Well, before we get into your story, Chris, uh, we always kick off the show with just an emotional check-in. How how are you feeling in this moment? How has your week been? Oh, you know, I am so cheery. Today is the first time I had a chance to see my fiance in a while because she and her daughter went on a vacation to Japan. And so I feel super excited to check in and hear about that whole experience in Japan. And, uh, you know, just in general, I feel like I'm on the cusp of something with a new book and it's been a grinder to get it there. So I feel, um, I feel like I'm uh, in a good space. That's good. That's good. And congrats on the, uh, you know, soon to be, uh, wed. Thank you. (laughs) And, uh, also the book. That's exciting. 
also probably grueling. Yeah. Um, you know, this will be my 10th. And so books are, you know, the first one you write, you're super proud and life's amazing and all that. And then if you're silly enough to write a second one, you're like, oh, man, I can't believe I had something else I really needed to cover. When it's three, it's more like an addiction. <laughs> and so, you know, you stop congratulating people, I think, after three. It's, it's like when you have cats. One, two, and three are okay. Once you get past three, you got to start querying a little bit more. Well, I mean, come on. I mean, writing 10 <laughs> books, you're you're belittling yourself now. I, I would say writing 10 books is a massive achievement. You know, it, uh, it was this or maybe join a gang, and I wasn't very good with any of that stuff. So, <laughs> You I had two both. options, write a book or join a gang. Yeah. Two, two classic options in life. <laughs> Apples, oranges. Yes, exactly. Well, awesome. That's, I mean, all, that's all sort of positive, great news. Um, for me, as for me, I, uh, I've been sort of sharing with my audience just little snippets of this sort of experience. I had a recent experience where, um, someone close to me was, and I'm wondering if you can, you've experienced this, Chris, but someone close to me, uh, was, very much invalidating my own sort of experience. You know, I was sort of sharing with them uh, emotional realities from my experience and how they've impacted me and, and sort of my own mental health journey and, and everything that was thrown back my way was, was complete invalidation. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And uh, so I've been I've been writing about it, and it'll I think it'll eventually be a an episode. But I I I I, I just as a teaser to that episode, I, I guess I'm wondering. My question to you, Chris, is like, have you ever experienced invalidation, especially in terms of like invalidating? You feel like invalidating yourself and your identity. Have you ever experienced something like that? It's a good question. I it's good because my I was a, I was a, a I learned to be a very good people pleaser in sort of my experiences in life, and that was kind of my mode for how I need, thought I needed to approach interacting with people all the time, and um, especially around my parents, I was very much you know kind of feeling like I needed to do things to please my parents, and then as as time went on. One thing I, I started to learn, I, I connected with the Shambhala uh, Buddhism belief and or philosophy, let's say, and a lot of that was trying to teach a little bit about detachment, that good and bad emotions or Im opinions from every other person maybe aren't that helpful. So neither praise nor criticism is helpful. Hmm. So when people have opted to say things that might be invalidating to me, I've worked really hard at learning how not to uh, give them any weight or a seat at my particular mental table. So I guess I'm not impervious to that feeling, but I'm a lot more resistant to it than I ever was in the uh, old days. I mean, that's amazing. I think we all, I mean, because I think we all experience that. We, we all experience invalidation, but getting to a place where it doesn't impact us and we can still sort of take pride and ownership of our own agency and our own, you know, beliefs and, and sort of life paths, you know, but how do we get there, right? Like, how do we, like, I've been working on it through therapy and I, I think I'm, I've been processing it pretty well, but like, can you give me some insight into like how you've been able to do that? 
like because it can't be easy like what are what are some tips do you have a tip or two yeah well i mean so one of the tips i use overall in general for dealing with the various ways that people can get really stuck and mired down is to take smaller bites and look at everything in sort of a today only or just the next 20 minutes only kind of mindset Mm. um and i and i think that helps like one thing that we all do and especially those of us who are really sensitive uh do really well is we take a, a like sort of piece of mental tape recorder tape and we replay like pieces of the world over and over and over and over and over again um, <laughs> yeah. to the point of it's almost like when you bite your cheek and then you want to keep poking at it with your tongue. Oh, yeah. And so someone says to you, you know, Wells, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, you're out there always doing this thing, but you're total phony. And, you know, I don't know why you just keep at it. Why don't you just go work at Best Buy and shut up and leave everyone alone? And you're in your head like, oh man, I I like half believe that anyway. Why did they? How did they know? Yeah. Um, and then you replay it a million times. Or this is the one that drives me most insane about myself, and I, I I try to remind people that we all do this. We all tend to think we have the the superpower of reading minds, and so we put a lot of dialogue in other people's mouths, and we put a lot of thoughts in their heads that were never said, and so in that sense you know, we'll fill in what we think was going on that made someone upset with us. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, that's another area where everyone can can learn to remind yourself that you're not a mind reader. That certainly helps in a great, uh, to me all the time that helps. Yeah. No, that's, those are, those are fantastic. And I, I do that. I do those things all the time. I mean, and I, I, I catch myself for sure, but like, I think, um, we as humans tend to want to control things and, 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 and the fact of the matter is obviously we don't read minds and obviously we can't control how people react. So what we can do is control what we bring to experiences. And, and when we're facing someone who's invalidating us, we can choose to ignore them. We can choose to, I mean, it's, it's not easy, but like, I think that, reminding ourselves that we are powerful and resilient and, and, and do matter and our emotions matter and are real, you know, uh, that's, that's sort of a helpful dialogue for me. Uh, otherwise. Well, you know, there was the, um, the philosopher, I can't remember his full name. Uh, Lebowski, I think was his last name. And he said, Hey man, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> And I, I think that that's a really useful part of philosophy that, you know, that whole movie gets a short shrift as just being kind of a funny movie about a stoner. Um, but that's true, right? Yeah, like yeah. someone comes along and they decide you're not worth it. I mean, I've been told every step of the way I'll never make it. But so far I've been not making it, you know, for decades. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm waiting to figure out, how, you know, when that never make it hits which wall and then what happens. But so far I've been doing okay for a guy who's ne- never going to make it. I love that. And and for the listeners, if you aren't familiar with that reference, it's The Big Lebowski, a seminal philosophical work uh, created by the philosophers uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, great, great movie. Well, Chris, uh, thank you for jabbing me, uh, jabbing, gabbing with me on that. Um, let's talk about your depression. Like when did, um, when were you diagnosed? How did that come about? I don't think I ever got formally diagnosed until um, early 2011. Okay. And um, I my 
I had been married for some amount of time, uh, 10 years or so. And that was falling apart all over the place by, you know, end of 2010. And so I went and saw a therapist and I was trying to figure out, you know, how bad a person I am or what's wrong with me and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, first off, you know, maybe there's not a lot wrong with you. Maybe you just have to kind of straighten some things out. And two is pretty clear you have mild clinical depression. Maybe we should kind of work on some meds for that. And I was like, oh, uh, okay. And um, in that process, I mean, even then, and even with the help of a, a trained, licensed professional, it wasn't like he said, and this is what that means. And or maybe here's a book or two you could read, or you know, here's some stuff that'll kind of send you on your path. It was just like, you have depression, want some drugs? Okay. Yeah. Um, now, like many years after that, you know, it, it took a lot of learning and practicing and, you know, work with uh, Jacqueline, the woman I'm with now, it took a lot of work to uh, find kind of the operating instructions to how I'm going to make it through all that sort of stuff. And I, I thought, gee, it really would have been cooler if this worked a little easier for me, but it didn't. And so I found, figured out my ways. And then, uh, you know, I always just tell people I'm, I'm a more or less functional person with depression. I, I can work, I can do my stuff. And just some days I'm going to get a lot less payload for what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of things I want to point out in that is, is, is one, uh, the experience that I very much had when I first sort of sought help, um, mentally, uh, was exactly like what you experienced. It was, it was a doctor who basically said, take these pills. There was really not much. And this was, uh, I guess would have been around 2002 or so. Mm -hmm. He kind of threw some pills at me. I I didn't, there was no sort of dialogue, no sort of in-depth conversation. It was just like, take these things, which I feel, you know, I I think I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I feel like that is problematic, right? But it it's a, a a wake up call that I think many of us probably probably have experienced before, um, and so I would say to that person or to myself at the time, like, you know, there is so much opportunity, or there can be opportunity for sort of educating yourself about these things and maybe finding therapy or or what have you. Um, so I wanted to sort of bring up, uh, you know, raise a little empathy in, in, cause I experienced the same thing. The second thing is like, um, a question, like what, what were, what were some of the things that the doctor was kind of picking up in you that led him or her to, to say, Oh, I think you have mild clinical depression. Uh, you know, I, I did a good job of sort of sketching out what my life was looking like. And I think he just cued to some of the things that are fairly common. I, I, I never like to ever think that anything's particularly universal with any mental state, but you know, the sort of finding it hard to get out of bed, low, low, low energy, yeah. um, sort of nihilistic belief patterns, um, just a very, um, low joy threshold. I, I like everyone who deals with depression. I mean, I'd say to everybody all the time, I laugh all the time. I'm super happy all the time, but that, you know, it, it's almost like, the number goes from 14 down to negative six or something. And, um, not unlike bipolar where that story is like, it just bounces up and down a lot with type one bipolar depression. It's just like, you know, once you have that number 14 level kind of happiness, you drop down to your steady state, which might be like a negative two or negative three. Yeah. 
Mm. And so, you know, the, the concept around medicating for depression, at least not counting like the work you got to do in your head and your lifestyle and all that other stuff you got to do is all built around the idea that we want to try to get you up to like a zero or a one in your mental state so that you can, you know, you can, you can dip below normally and you can go above normally, but it's not normal to stay in the negative. Yeah. Interesting. And what, so after kind of getting this diagnosis, what, what did your next kind of couple of years look like? Um, you know, it, uh, it was not the, it was not that beautiful fairy tale kind of feeling of like, you know, uh, they told me this and the next thing I knew I was great and I, I like everything made sense suddenly. Yeah. I it mean, was more I, that, yeah. you know, that's pretty common on, for it not to be a fairy tale. Yeah, right. I worked on my, um, I, I worked on, well, first off trying out some of the drugs and going, oh man, these stink. Like these are all bad. Um, it was really weird that the majority of antidepressants also take away your sex drive. Mm. And I was thinking, I love sex. Like that, that's something I don't think I want to sacrifice. You know, I'd rather be depressed than not want to have sex. So, um, I, I found one med that kind of worked like that, but then if the healthcare system is like, no, those other ones are fine. Um, so it took me years to kind of find the right chemical, uh, support and then the emotional and physical support. I mean, I just had to do a lot of work, a lot of reading and, and kind of a lot of learning with Jacqueline about, you know, what was, what's a way through it that we're both very much kind of into, you know, high performance and trying to, you know, have no excuses and do all that. What's that look like when you're also having to account for this depression, which kind of throws some wrenches your way? Yeah. And when did you meet Jacqueline in this sort of mental health journey of yours? Uh, you know, right at the beginning of realizing that it was all, you know, <laughs> going to be somewhat tied to that. Okay. And, uh, you know, we knew, we had known each other from online for a few years um, in the same sort of space, you know, blogging, creating content, podcasting and conferences and that sort of a thing. And when the relationship started, I said to her, I said, I am like the last thing I should probably do right now is have a relationship. And she said, too bad. Like, you know, this is what we do. This this is, you know, we're going to feel what we're going to feel. and We'll just see what happens. It's all good. And it was. And it was. No one thought we'd be together. Everyone thought it was stupid. Everyone thought it was a fling or like a rebound or any of those kinds of things. And it was, it was really just kind of like one and one and then multiplying. Mm. Um, and with the depression stuff, you know, she's she's the perfect mix of being very empathetic, empathetic to, you know, that this stuff happens that way. But she absolutely holds me to my own words, you know, and that's important because, yeah. you know, we all like to rip up all the receipts when we uh, deal with depression and. Some of them you kind of can, and the others you have to kind of shut up and do the work. Yeah, no, that's true. I think there has to be there has to be both. There really does. I think there has to be that sort of empathetic, sort of feely, kind heart. But there also has, you know, we 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 also are humans, sort of living our own lives, and we have to we have to be accountable for for our actions and responsible for our actions. Um, now, when you met Jacqueline, were you, was that the first person you were kind of talking about with this mental health stuff or were you being open about it with friends or your community? I mean, it, it all happened at the same time in a lot of ways. So okay. like I talk, I'm pretty open with people. I'm I'm open with complete strangers about, you know, what's in my head or whatever. But when the, 
when the experience came about, and I was like, oh, all right, well, I guess there's a label. I mean, life works better with labels sometimes. I thought, oh, I'll just figure out what med works. That was kind of interesting for me because none of the meds, except for one that was totally not covered by my plan, worked at all. And that one didn't work super great. And, you know, I don't know where the rest of the conversation goes, but I do want to put in a plug for something that's only now becoming a lot more commonly known about in the public. Uh, but my shrink at the time said to me, hey, have you ever heard of this drug called ketamine? And I said, no. And he goes, well, it's weird. It started as a horse tranquilizer and then it was off the market. And then people started taking it like as a party drug. Right. Um, but we think it's got some really cool features that might help with depression. He goes, what do you think? And I go, uh, you know, I've never even smoked pot or anything. Like I don't, that seems a little nuts. And he goes, yeah, want to try it? And I was like, <laughs> um, yeah. When so, so this, this is what you're on now? Yeah. So, um, oh, wow. but, but by on it's, I got to tell you the process cause it's really crazy. Um, like I've only had two doses of it so far in like three years. Um, it's like an IV drug the way I'm taking it. There's also a new one on the market that's, you know, through nasal spray. And I go to a doctor's office. I go sit in a really nice, quiet room, very quiet room, with lots of extra pillows in the in the medical seat where they examine you. Um, they hook me up to an IV. They put this drug into me for about an hour. And I've never done drugs, so I can't explain it super well, but it's trippy. You trip. Like, you colors make noises and that sort of a thing. And it's just crazy drug-induced kind of weird old hallucinations like Beatles films. And then you take an Uber or a Lyft back home because there's no way you could possibly drive a vehicle. And then for almost a straight year, uh, sometimes more, sometimes a little less, my chemicals, every time I feel the chemical version of depression, I instead inside my body somewhere will feel part of my body kind of heat up a little, almost like, you know, part of the stove was left on. And then that sensation goes away. The chemical side of it goes away. And so it keeps me way more buoyant with just the one treatment every year or so. This is mind blowing to me because I've heard about this, this treatment. And of course, you know, uh, growing up with uh, my sister doing all of the drugs, I, you know, I've, I've of course heard about ketamine. Uh, and I've heard, you know, uh, recent sort of studies and sort of news articles about treating people with depression or other mental illness uh, with this ketamine. And uh, wow, that's amazing. Now, I always say to people that every drug works different for different people. And, you know, uh, some people, the plain old standard SSRIs that people get are fine. And they'd be looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, weirdo. But for (laughs) me, like none of them were working especially well. And this one, it was like magic. I, I just... You know, and it might work totally different for other people. Other people might need the treatment more often, and it's yeah. totally not covered by anyone's insurance in the U.S. Um, and but it wasn't wasn't super expensive. Like if you, it was like six hundred bucks or something for me. And if you mark that against like a year worth of not chemical depression, I would have paid a lot more than that. Yeah, I mean it's so fascinating. So I, you know, I'm on uh, this drug called Vibrid, which is an SSRI. I know that one. That's the that's the only one that worked for me before. Yeah. So it's I feel like I either need to up my dosage or something or try something else because it's starting to not like I'm still finding myself in patches of really kind of dark moments and uh-huh. um like I know like. 
I can't expect a drug to completely remove um, my depression, but I don't know. There's something about it that I, I, it's, it's starting to not sit with me well. And I've tried a bunch of different ones. And I've been thinking lately about like, eh, maybe I need to kind of explore different ideas. And my, my psychiatrist recently brought another one to my attention. I don't recall the name, but it's kind of newer. Um, but it has some side effects that I'm not into, which are like mm-hmm. nausea and diarrhea, which are things that I struggle with, you know, generally, right. and I don't want to like up that. <laughs> so, um, this is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm so curious. Like I've never talked to anyone else who's, who's sort of, or anyone who's, 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 uh, gone this route with their, with their mental health treatment. It's really fascinating. Well, it really opened up my mind to a lot of things at the same time, this, you know, the, the first or second time, I guess I got this, this treatment, uh, my fiance, uh, she was working in uh, biopharmaceutical work with uh, a, a company that was doing something for livers and whatnot. And her boss also had all these projects where she's investing or sitting on the board of a lot of other startup type companies. Mm-hmm. And she started investigating medical cannabis for a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. And so here I am trying this party drug. And then along comes medical marijuana and everyone's saying, you know, that's pretty good for depression too. Um and I haven't, you know, I haven't really worked with that yet or anything. And again, it was a, I never did any kinds of drugs. I, I drank, but that was about it. Um, but as I'm looking at how it treats PTSD in military types, as I'm looking at how um, CBD, which is the non-psychoactive part, helps people with epilepsy and lots of other conditions, I started taking uh, a full spectrum CBD gummy every day to see if that's going to kind of help level off the the uh, minor parts of depression as well. And so that's, you know, another thing to look at that I would never have thought I was interested in investigating, but the more I read about it and, you know, if, if treated well and sort of handled like it's an actual medical, uh, experience, I, I have a different opinion about it than I used to two years ago. Right. Right. I wonder if like this type of thing, you know, here, you know, cause I like, my hopes for all of us is that, you know, we sort of continue to progress as a society that is more and more open about mental health. And I wonder if like this is maybe a sort of a byproduct or sort of part and parcel to that sort of further opening up this, you know, exploration of different of other things. And I think it's, I I think it's great. Like I am, I am pro all the things. And I, I feel like, we each of us are so uniquely different, especially when it comes to our brain chemistry. Why, why not ex- sort of explore different different things? Like I've been reading, just started reading um, Michael Pollan's new book. Oh yeah, on uh, uh, psychedelics, and it's it's mm-hmm. fascinating. Like it's like you know using psychedelics for treatment of uh, things like depression and 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 anxiety and things like that, which is is really, I think, um, I, you know, in a way, like, I hope it, we continue to kind of, like, go toward that, and we, there's more and more sort of funding for other ideas, because, you know, the thing about um, sort of any sort of, you know, discovery or medical advancement is, like, we need to kind of keep looking, we need to keep being curious about it, right? Absolutely, and... You know, the the experience for me 
with looking into this a bit more, you know, I guess it came partly out of that feeling of the fact that pharmaceutical entities aren't by nature inherently evil, but a lot of them most definitely, I mean, what's their incentive? Their incentive is to get you to use their product. Right. So they're never going to fund any research that says, oh yeah, you know, you could buy this totally chemical thing that we created, or you could just, you know, consume the powers of this plant that anyone could grow in any backyard um, and you'll get something from it. And I think that, you know, with ketamine and, and also with some of the stuff that Michael Pollan's talking about, like LSD and now MDMA, it's getting crazy. Like what, what drugs people are talking about is helping with mental health. Well, any kind of a drug that can alter our mental state obviously might have something to do with our mental health if handled well and if treated well. One quick caveat to anyone paying attention to this is, I'm not in any way advocating for self-medication. There's just so many ways that we can mess ourselves up real bad by choosing, you know, to try to dose ourselves without any kind of external help. Um, yeah, and 100%. I think that it's important to throw that out. Yeah. But I would say that I also just want people to keep their eyes open to the fact that it might not be a factory manufactured pill. Uh, even if you still need chemicals, it might not be a factory manufactured pill that will get you to the finish line. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's usually not even just one thing. It's usually a collection of things. It's 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 self care. It's it's mindfulness. It's you know uh, maybe some sort of treatment. It's therapy. It's it's it uh, it takes a village, really. Yeah, yeah. And have you uh, specifically written about your experience with ketamine? Um, I think. I have. I'd have to look around and take a look, see. But um, I, ha if if nothing else, I at least have tweeted or put a couple posts on Facebook. Um, I guess it's probably worth writing down. I mean, it's really weird too because, again, if you've never had any kind of you know chemically induced hallucinations, it was really nuts. I, I can't understand how people could use it as a party drug, because you know, to me, I was I sort of felt like I was watching the walls melt and listening to colors make weird sounds and things that I, I can't imagine trying to operate in the regular world, you know, even as simple as someone saying to me, Hey, do you, you know, you want a glass of water or something? Yeah. It, you know, but the, I mean, the way it felt like to me and like very visibly in my head, it sort of feels like you take a, uh, I don't know. It's like pressure cleaning all these tubes. I feel like they pushed this chemical into my body and whatever kinds of chemicals that kind of mess with, you know, serotonin, I guess, probably and some other stuff, whatever the chemicals are that mess with my happiness, this drug ketamine just seems to grab hold of them and say, eh, I'm going to hold you down for a minute because I think we can get past this without you. Mm, that's a good image. And, uh, I, and I, sw I swear we'll move on from this, but it's just so fascinating to me. Uh, did they, when you went through this experience, what was the, what was the sort of education part of it? Were they, were they sort of, Hey, uh, Chris, you're gonna, you're gonna see uh, clocks melting and like, are they preparing you for this stuff? <laughs> it was very matter of fact in a way. I mean, I did go and do some research. He showed me a website or two. Um, I went beyond that to try to look it up. I had Jack who's like, you know, again, she's worked on biopharmaceutical tech and, you know, biotech, I'm sorry, and other stuff. And she was, you know, she's a few points away from finishing a PhD. So wow. her research was going to be better than mine, which is like Google, WebMD, and, you know, Quora. Um, <laughs> which but, all lead to you have cancer. Yeah, pretty much cancer and AIDS. I have AIDS cancer or something. So <laughs> I, um, 
I, you know, when I looked at all that, I was, I was, I felt like, oh, well, you know, I think I'll give it a try. No, what he said to me is he goes, you ever do any drugs? And I said, no, he goes, I'm not a cop. I said, no, really? No, like nothing. And he goes, oh, he goes, you ever heard anyone say you're going to trip balls? And I said, uh, I have heard that. And he goes, well, that's what you're going to do. He goes, it's going to be crazy, very hallucinogenic. Get a ride to the place, get a ride back from the place. Don't schedule anything interesting for the whole day. You're going to probably want to go to sleep afterwards. And that's probably good. Like take a nap. And, uh, and that's exactly how it went down. Um, the first time I did it, I felt nothing but bliss the whole time. The second time I did it, I had a brief moment of paranoia. Like, oh, no, what if I'm stuck this way forever? Mm. Uh, and then I was fine. Everyone asked me that question. Like, do you get paranoid? And I was like, nope. Um, and in both cases, you know, the it, it was it was like throwing on a light switch, though. It was kind of a day and night feeling. It was not a gradual feeling. It was like the very next day. I was like, all right, let's go take a shower for the first time in a week. Wow. And off I was. And all it took was your doctor saying to you, trip balls. Yep. Yep. That was my, <laughs> that was the setup. That and a couple of websites. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, I. Uh, I think I could talk endlessly about this, but um, I I wanted to get into you lately. I mean, from what I've sort of read and noticed is you, you've been writing a, somewhat a lot about your, your mental health, which is fantastic and helpful for many of us. Like what, how has that process been? And, and has that been met with, you know, acceptance? Like what, what is, First of all, yeah, that's one question. The other is just the writing process with depression. Like, how 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 does that go for you? So funny. I was my first thought on the second part of the question was going to be like, I hate these kinds of questions. Then I thought, no, I have something kind of good to <laughs> talk about there. Um, the um, writing about depression. All right, so. I've done it a bunch of times over the years, just kind of at random. Like I'll say, this is what it's like to be an entrepreneur and deal with depression or whatever. And every time I put out a post like that on whatever platform, my website, or there's like one on Medium, there's or like two or three on Medium and one over on LinkedIn or something. They're all over the web at this point, like little promiscuous children. Um, and every time I write one of those, I get a flood of really nice people in private messages saying, oh my gosh, this really summed up how I feel or... I thought I was the only one or I'm crying because I, you know, I, I didn't know this was what I was feeling, but then I saw what you read and I articulated it so well and I get it. And, you know, so I, I get a lot of, um, validation, which I already told you, you're supposed to not seek validation or criticism. Sure. Um, but I, I kept thinking, well, okay. And then I'm in New York the other day with Jack and, uh, some friend of hers from online that she wanted to meet in real life. We go to this dinner together and I was feeling grumpy and kind of on my back foot for no real good reason that's worth explaining. But in the process of like the three of us talking, the other person says, you should totally write a book on depression. And Jack says, yeah, you totally should. And I got really defensive and wanted to take my ball and go home. And I was really grumpy. Um, and what I said afterwards when I was talking to Jack was that almost every single time I know that I'm going to do something is when I fight it and protest it the hardest. So I guess I should look into this a little bit. And it took me, I don't know, seven or eight or not, or so months between them saying, you know, you should really try to find some kind of way, way to write a book about depression that would work for the kind of stuff you want to talk about to now, like even the day of this recording where I'm going, okay, I know how I can make this work. I can, I can see this becoming the book I need it to be. And that's where we are. And 
you know, I'm wondering how the process has been in terms of just accessing your emotions and making sense of them, like, and putting them into words. Because I know for me, um, it took a lot of just, and I guess this is, I mean, this is generally the writing process, a lot of just real shitty first drafts, right? <laughs> um, but a lot of stuff that I, I um, it took me a lot of um, sort of in parallel sort of inward looking into my own emotions and trying to figure out what them, what they were before I can even put them to words and before I can even, you know, make sense of them on paper and make, make sense of them, them on paper in a way that's, that's going to be meaningful and, and people are going to want to read. Like, how has, how has that been? Has that been hard for you or because you're this, you know, you know, New York times bestselling author, it's, has it been easy? Um, so this is sort of the second part of your question too, of like, what's it like to write about this and all that. So, uh, I don't, I try really hard not to overanalyze myself. I think that one of the symptoms of uh, depression is that you tend to look at your belly button a lot. And so that's sort of my, my small version of words of saying, um, you know, when we, you know, if we spend too much time self-reflecting, we're not going to be, you know, uh, all that useful to the rest of the world. Mm. And so a lot of my writing about depression and a lot of my writing about explaining any of these kinds of things, um, all the other things that would cause us to feel dented, I always write it from the perspective of I have this and I'm still able to be functional and I can still perform in such a way that I could be useful to business and all that. And the reason I do that is because first off, I'm just so loathe for anybody to try to be, um, to make excuses out of their condition. You know, we, people dealing with depression or anxiety or a lot of other things need some slack here and there, but you can't write a blank check with that. And so I'm always trying to make it so that people can talk about this without it feeling like it's a, it's going to a funeral. Mm. I always want it to be like, yeah, I'm dealing with depression and boy, today was a crappy day at work, but it wasn't because of depression. It was because, you know, three other guys didn't do their part of my project or whatever right. they're going to say, you know? And so when I write about it, that's what I write about. I write about, you know, here's the kind of stuff that you might be feeling or might be dealing with. And here's some ways to get over it. Here's some ways to talk to other people about your side of it. And I, I write stuff sometimes for people who don't deal with depression, but deal with people dealing with it. And I say, you know, here's some things that are not that helpful to say. Here's some things that might be better to say. Um, because you know, even the language I use, I never say I suffer from depression. I say I deal with depression. Mm -hmm. When I use the term dented, I have a really big dent in the back left panel of my car, but I've driven it that way for eight or plus years now, and it's still fine. And so my car works, and it's dented. I love that so much. I think it's a really beautiful way to normalize uh, having these things. And I, I, it's been said on the show before, and I think you said it quite beautifully, but this idea that you're right, like we, I have depression, but I, it's not all of me. I am also a writer. Like I'm also, I can also do these things. Like, you know, and I think that's, I think that that gives me hope and that I think can give other people hope when they're feeling a little bit lost and a little bit hopeless in, in their, in their mental health there's those moments that we all kind of run into where you're thinking, you know, oh, I'll never make it. 
all these other people don't have this thing. And, you know, it's called baggage for a reason, right? Because baggage is something you can pick up and take with you. But the other kind of cool thing about baggage is you can put it down, you know, and it's not that easy. And sometimes it's easier said than done. But sometimes we spend so many calories holding on to a particular emotional state. And I think that my hope is that when we talk about this in a much more practical way, then we can shake some of it off and we can move forward. Because if people say that in an empathic way, if people say that in like, not not the way, you know, walk it off, you'll be fine. But more like, you know, is this, is this a big depression moment or is this a little depression moment? That's little. I'm I'm just feeling that thing I'm feeling. Great. You want to get a cup of coffee and let's see if we can just chill for a minute and then get back at it. And then, you know, you you can. I think resets are so much more important than we ever, you know, take for uh, take advantage of. And I think that we just need a lot more little reset buttons throughout our life to make it work better. Yeah. No, that's great. And and just checking in. Yeah, checking in with ourselves if we can. Like I think finding the 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 path to check-in is, is super important. Um, you know, um, so you mentioned this idea of like dented and I, I love, I love that. I, I love that a lot. What is, what does that mean to you exactly? Cause I, you know, I can sort of, um, probably explain, uh, but I, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, what, what does being a dented person mean? Well, I think dented, is a lot easier to own than a lot of other labels that people want to give somebody. But like, you know, I have friends in the military in special operator community who are all dealing with some level or another of PTSD. I mean, a massive amount of them. And yet, you know, they're still the first to call and the first to take action and they can still move forward. And so they're dented, but they can keep acting, you know, they keep moving as if. Um, I've, I know people who deal with addictions and who are really proud of their two-year coin, but maybe won't talk about it at the workplace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're dented in that way, you know, and they, they do their 12 steps or whatever works for them. And they're, you know, kind of dealing with, but moving forward with that. So the, the term in general is just that sense of, I have, I have these challenges, but I can go forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it's not the end, but I definitely am not, you know, pristine and flawless. And I just think that kind of the opposite of dented or the, you know, the enemy in the dented story is that business and life and everything feels like it pushes us towards that we should all be fitting in and that we should all be sort of following, you know, the straightforward factory settings. Right. And I don't think that anymore. I think we all come one to a pack and then we all, you know, we all want to belong somewhere. And so I think that people are really tired of fitting in. And that we need to revisit this fast digital world of ours, which is not going to change. It's just going to get faster and bigger and more connected. Well, how do we thrive with that, you know, new set of variables? And what's it going to take for us to figure out our way through it all? Yeah, that's I love that. And it, a lot of it um, seems to be... Uh, about accepting others for who they are and meeting meeting them where they are and actually seeing them and validating their own sort of unique talents and experiences they bring to the pack. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, um, a long time ago, starting about back in like early 2009, 
uh, when I was going out and I was doing a lot of speeches, instead of starting the speech in a lot of different ways, for a whole year or so, I started every speech with a Zulu greeting, which is Sawubona, which is I see you. Mm. And I love it so much more than just saying, hey, or waving at someone. Because I, Sawubona, I see you. And then Nikona, I am here, is like recognizing that there's a person there. And, and I think that as technology gets so much better at trying to predict and analyze and, and know us before we even show up and all that, we need to really push harder on empathy, creativity, and collaboration to deliver the best possible experience in business. But also for we as workers, you know, we're going to need to build our resilience, build our chance to uh, work in these spaces. And our, I think our um, people who are dealing with those kinds of challenges are sort of special sauces that we have more empathy than the average person. And so we can put that to better use. Yeah. You know, one of the I've had a variety of different jobs, Chris, and I, I've had some uh, <laughs> I've had some experiences in sort of corporate worlds that have been, frankly, very unhealthy, right? This, mm-hmm. this, and I, I'm sure you hear this and are bumping up against this a lot, but this idea that, you know, this emphasis on sort of crushing it all the time and powering through and overcoming. And I think, I think there's uh, value. There's, there's, there's validity in that. And there's value in some of that. But I, I think not to the detriment of the person who may be struggling and is not sort of taking in the big picture of what we're talking about and, and, and actually recognizing that this person is dented or recognizing that this person may needs a moment or may needs a different mode of operation or may needs a different, um, way to look at or what have you. But like, I've, I've experienced this in, in sort of the corporate world. And I'm wondering, how that has been for you. You are sort of like this big name in business. You are, you're an advisor in businesses. Like how, how is your message of the dented people and, and this sort of inclusivity, this sort of uh, idea that sort of we're all in this together and, and it's okay sometimes to not be okay. Like how has that been met with some, uh, some of these businesses you're, you're speaking to? It's, it's a really great question. I, I think that there's a, there's an unintentional gap between the intentions of leadership and corporate structure uh, compared to what that looks like practically. It's so much easier, you know. Just this is a weird political connection, and I'll I'll try to strip it of all its political validity. But the question asked to a bunch of proposed candidates was, um, "Do you think that people in jail should be allowed to vote?" And the answer is like, yeah, I, I think that. And they kind of had a good, you know, intelligent reason why. And they're like, even the Boston bomber? And like that sort of changes the tone of the question because mm-hmm. now you're like talking about someone who committed a terrorist act, et cetera. And that was like kind of a got you question. And I feel like with corporations, um, the, the question is, you know, do you think mental wellness is really important to your uh, employees? And they'll say, yeah, absolutely. And we have health and wellness programs and we are very, you know, we're very much interested in this sort of a thing. Um, but there are so many uh, things that are pointing out problems in that space. So, for instance, disengaged employees cost the U.S. companies as much as $550 billion a year. Wow. 
yeah, $550 billion. So if I showed you that you could better engage with customers, you could recoup some of that lost money. 96% of employees believe that showing empathy is an important way to advance employee retention. So if 96% of employees, that means one guy in one study somewhere said, nah, you know, everyone else agrees that, you know, empathy probably would be helpful. Um, workers who, uh, 89% of workers who say that they're uh, in, in that companies that support well-being initiatives are more likely to recommend their company as a good place to work. Well, in the U.S. at least, uh, retention of employees is super important right now, and it's it's not working very well. And so anyone who wants to try to earn the chance to have more people into their company, they're going to have to learn that they're going to have to bring in the dented, right? One in five adults experiences mental illness in a given year. That's 43.8 million people. Yeah. Um, one in 25, it's serious mental illness. And that's a little different, right? And so if one in five people are dealing with depression, but very few companies have an outward active mental health system rolling inside their organization, then what do they think they're going to get for results? Yeah, mental health is important. Hope it works. You know what I mean? Like if, if no one takes that next step of, so what does that look like and what do we have to do? understanding that we're a business and we're not here to, you know, cure people's mental health. How do we, how do we make it work, but not like wreck our company? Right. That's the, that's the big problem. I think I can help corporations work on a bit. And the feedback has been a lot of sort of like, yes. And I don't know what I'm going to do with that. And you know, it's, it's early days for it. Yeah. No, I thank you for that. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually the last few months, because I I've actually been working on, uh, a business idea um, that would hopefully serve to make that whole thing better. Um, but I, I, you know, cause I've been in, I've been in companies before that have had sort of wellness programs that have, have had this I, I, health program, you know, yoga, like opportunities, those sorts of things. But it was always, it always felt like, uh, just like an add-on. It never felt like it was taken seriously. It never felt like it was a core part of the culture and uh, there at the company. It never felt like people were interested in it. So I, I, I think, you know, it makes sense that um, we still have some ways to go, but I think I believe that empathy, sort of laying the groundwork of empathy, laying the groundwork of uh, allowing people uh, the opportunities to be vulnerable, laying the groundwork of like emotional wayfinding as, as these sort of key kind of components to wellness. Like, I think that's where we can maybe move the needle a bit. There's so much opportunity. And I I think the other kind of semi-related part of that is that there's so much new all of a sudden that people didn't really have to know how to deal with or whatnot, um, partly because it was less exposed to the world and partly because fewer people were being as uh, vocal about making these changes in their lives or whatnot. But I think that, you know, you're, you're right on to where you need to be because, you know, I, 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 for instance, think of something as simple as anxiety disorder. No one ever talked much about anxiety disorder because it sounded like kind of a made up thing for such a long time. Sure. But there's this big survey of people who had, you know, who were diagnosed with anxiety disorder. Nearly 50% said that it interfered with their relationships with coworkers, meaning, you know, they're going to have trouble working. 
Looking at the financial impact of employee health problems, number one on the list of financially impacting uh, problems at work was uh, depression mm-hmm. and then obesity and et cetera, et cetera. But anxiety was in the top five as well. Wow. So yeah. it's uh, add to that, like we're talking about things like inclusivity and all that, add to that with people dealing with trans uh, situations, multiculturalism, um, all of the, the you know, things going on with the Me Too movement and sexual yeah. identity and all these other issues going on. Uh, and it's just a crazier world. It's just kind of a unprecedented time for people to feel such a massive pile of uncertainty and anxiety. Empathy most definitely is one of the best uh, medicines to help with that because just sometimes that feeling of I can relate takes a lot of weight off of everybody. Oh my gosh. Yes. 100%. Yeah. No, I, I'm thankful that you're, you know, sort of in agreement on that and you're talking about it and writing about it. It's, we need, we need more voices like that in the world. And, and, you know, I, I hope someday that sort of this business idea that I have sort of ruminating does come to fruition and I can, I can start making a a bigger impact because it's just, it's so important to me. I have, you know, I have lots of sort of trauma in my past and, and, and mental illness in my family. And, and it just means so much to me that we need to, as humans on this planet, recognize that and, and accept that and, and, you know, recognize that we're in this thing together. We're, we're on this planet together. And it, it, it boggles my mind that we can't shed a little bit of the ego that so often gets in our way and, and, and sort of connect with one another on a, on a level that's, that's human and authentic, you know? I utterly agree. And I think that, you know, if we're going to exist in a world where we have to keep a lot of tortoises fed, then, you know, we have to have better mental health. It's so funny that you mentioned tortoise because just yesterday. Scooter McScuttlebutt, perhaps? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I met uh, my my dear friends, Becky and Norm, uh, who are my neighbor uh, here. Um, they just got, yeah, a big old Russian tortoise that is adorable. You know, like you do. Like, like some you days do. you're sitting around and you think, I think I need a giant tortoise. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm starting to grow uh, romaine uh, and spinach in my backyard, so I can um, I can give uh, scoot scooter McScuttlebutt uh, some food every once in a while, which is exciting. <laughs> it strikes me that you have like you know a friend for life now because of your choice of garden product. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, um, what what are you what are you excited about now? Like you're working on the book. You're working. I know you're working on. Uh, a new sort of talk, you know, what, what's, what's sort of getting you excited? It all relates. I mean, it all relates to trying to figure out ways that I can get people together and uh, carry this a little bit further than me. A lot of the things I've talked about in the past, I haven't really kept the flag flying far enough and long enough for people to gather around it. Mm. Like I get kind of interested in other stuff and roam away and try something else. And I really need to keep the attention on this a little bit longer because just a lot of people are finding themselves in various challenges that need to uh, get past this. And so I'm just going to be out here trying to think of the right words for people to uh, 
insert themselves or decide that they're just an ally to these kinds of people. Mm-hmm. I think about everyone can qualify as dented for the most part. Uh, I think even the people that we look at sometimes when we're feeling really down and we're feeling a little resentful, I think they have their, you know, dented things that we don't know about. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, to your point about understanding empathy, which by the way, I ordered one of your t-shirts while I was waiting to connect with you on Skype. So oh my gosh. You are a can't sweetie, wear a man after my own heart. Oh, I just love the drawing and everything too. It's just perfect. So I'll show you to, I'll show you to you on Instagram when I get it out. That's nice. Um, I think that, you know, at this point, people talk to me about ending the stigma and all that. I'm just not interested in that part, but I can say that, um, instead of ending the stigma, maybe we can just yes. And it the way that, uh, improv people do mm, and say, mm-hmm. yep, I'm dealing with this and I am so good at my job. So hire me. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're 100% correct. And for me, uh, ending the stigma isn't a focus of mine because it's for, in my perspective, more of just like a byproduct of doing what we're talking about. You know, yes. Like I think it, it it's less uh, sort of leading the charge and more of just like this will happen if we, you know, talk about inclusivity. We uh, lead with our hearts. We sort of embrace empathy and we meet people where they are. We accept them, all that stuff. Like and then ending stigma, you know, the stigma begins to reduce naturally. I'm with you. <laughs> um, well, let's let's uh, let's start sort of wrapping up here. Um, we always wrap up the show, Chris, talking about our empathy heroes. These are people in our lives. They could be authors. They could even be characters from books or movies. Just someone who is just a great sort of empath in the world and making making uh, the world a little better with their empathy. Um, I will give you a moment to think on your empathy hero and list mine this week, which is the author Nora McInerney who uh, I read her new book, No Happy Endings, uh, just this past week. Uh, and it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's about grief. It's about moving on from, basically, she married uh, her first husband who died um, three years after they got married of uh, um, cancer. And, um, and it's about moving on from that and also sort of accepting the fact that, like, he will always... Her sort of past husband will always be her love, but also she has this new love in her life and sort of navigating that experience and sort of navigating the new sort of uh, new family that she has in her life. And it's it's really hilarious. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. She is a beautiful gem of a human that is doing the work that we're talking about and and sort of embracing empathy and, and bringing sometimes a little levity in the darkness. So, um Nora McInerney uh, is my empathy hero. Listeners, go pick up her book, No Happy Endings. It is fantastic. Well, Chris, how about you? Who's who's your empathy hero? I am going to go with Jonathan Fields. I don't know why. It just popped into my head. Jonathan's a wonderful guy out of New York, um, has done lots of great stuff. He's an author as well as speaker. He's done all kinds of cool uh, courses and podcasts and all that sort of thing. He's always working on projects that um, really look for the best inside of somebody and kind of how are you going to move your way through your life in a certain way and all that. And he's um, a media maker like ourselves. So he's definitely that he's, he's got a great live event. That's like, you know, sort of like summer camp for grownups. Oh, amazing. And uh, he's just kind of a good guy to know if you've never met 
seen him before. So Jonathan Fields, I'll, I'll give it to him. Nice. He's the guy that uh, does the Good Project. Yep, that's yes. one of them. Yep. Yeah, I've definitely heard of him and and have checked out that podcast before. That's that's great. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, no worries. I mean, it just blew into my head, so I figured he must be the right one. Perfect. I love it. Uh, well, Chris, uh, where can uh, where can listeners, where can the feely humans of Empathy come to go to connect with you and read uh, read your writing and all that stuff? Well, if I haven't bored everyone to death, uh, swing by <laughs> chrisbrogan.com. It will prompt you to try to sign up to my newsletter or I've got a new podcast launching uh, sometime, I don't know, soonish, called After I Fell Down, which will be about my sixth podcast project. So I love it. I love that. It'll, name it'll definitely be a kind of a companion to you, me, empathy in some ways, because it's about what happened after I fell down. I love it. So I guess go to chrisbrogan.com. Grab my newsletter. If you liked this conversation, then you'll have a chance to have your one-on-one conversation with me any day of the week. Nice. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on Yumi Empathy. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. I'm glad. And to you listeners, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, ah, inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's Yumi Empathy. Empathy.